Good morning. This morning's reading is from chapter 19 of the book of John, from verses 16 through to 24. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to the Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. We're going to be uh, exploring that passage, working through it together. So if you have your Bible, keep it open. Uh, It should also be on the screen behind us. Uh, You'll note if you were here last week that um, I've changed tacks and I've brought my own drink bottle. Uh, one with a lid on, so that hopefully I don't kick it into the electricals like last week. Let's uh, uh, let's pray together. Our God and Father, we can so often hear these words, these uh, descriptions of the final moments of Jesus's life. The final breaths as he walked and as he uh, lived and as he struggled and as he bled. And too often over familiarity can just breed kind of a numbness, uh, kind of a, a water off the duck's back and it fails to, to really hit home. It fails to strike and sink as deeply as it ought. Protect us from this this morning, we pray. Amen. Uh, there are some things, some stories that I wish I could read for the first time again. How good would it be to read Lord of the Rings for the first time again? It would be great, wouldn't it? I um, had a friend who we were watching uh, Braveheart with. She had never seen Braveheart and she was Scottish. So me and my friend, we thought, okay, this is uh, a key initiation moment. She's Scottish. She's never seen Braveheart. We sat down and we were watching it and you get to kind of one of the last scenes where he's being tortured and uh, it pans out across the crowd and you see... Uh, one of his friends there watching, standing on. And actually part of me wonders if the director did not have in mind the Apostle John standing on and watching the death of his leader and saviour. And my friend sitting on the couch 
kind of in this wait-to-you-momentous moment. She's kind of leaning forward and tears are falling down her face and she goes, I know what's going to happen. He's going to be rescued. And me and my friend Jackson just look at each other and we kind of think, oh man, that is, spoiler alert, not what happens. And he cries out with his final breath, freedom. And the executioner's axe falls. And my friend is just devastated, right? And there are some stories which I wish, I wish I could read for the first time again. See for the first time again. Hear for the first time again. And I think the Gospels surely are at the top of that list. What would it be like to hear and understand, to, to read and to see as it knowing nothing and to see this plan unfold for the first time? And John wants to do that for us and he wants really to kind of highlight a number of things but we're going to kind of reflect on three of those things in our passage this morning. John wants us to kind of be struck again by the power of the king. The power of the king. And then he wants us to to be hit by the love of the shepherd. And finally, he wants us to realize and be struck by the clothing of our shame, the strength of the king, the love of the shepherd, and the clothing of our shame. Verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Uh, A few things here. It is common place in Rome that uh, a criminal that was to be executed by crucifixion, it wasn't just kind of a private execution, it was to be a public humiliation. This was to be uh, drawn out, seen clearly by everyone. Similar to in France with the guillotine being in kind of the uh, town hall, temple court, that's not the right word, in the public kind of court, right? So that everyone might see what happens to those who, who dare rise up against Rome. And so what would happen is you would be made to carry the tool for your own execution on your back. And so you would be made to carry your own cross and walk through the city and not the shortest route, you would to take one of the longest routes, you would kind of weave your way through this known path uh, up and out of the gate and up to the this hill called Golgotha where you were to be executed. 
And it was a long path because they wanted everyone to be able to see what was happening to you. They wanted everyone to see um, the humiliation and the shame and the pain that you had to endure. And not just that, but the moment by Roman law you took your first step carrying your cross. You were already classed as dead. And so here's what it meant. That according to Roman law, the person carrying their cross, walking that path, had no rights. They were not even regarded as a person. And so part of the humiliation was, as they walked through that crowd, anyone could do anything to them. That anyone could spit on them, anyone could throw human waste on them, anyone could strike them even, mock them, ridicule, do whatever they wanted to them. The only, the only rule was you weren't allowed to break bones or to, to, ex, to kill them. Rome had to be the one that would have the final say there. And so Jesus carries his own cross out to the place of the skull. He walks along this path. And as he walks, it was commonplace for uh, either a sign to be hung around their neck or uh, kind of a herald to kind of go before them with a sign saying the person's identity, the criminal's identity, and then the crime that they were guilty of. And when they got up to the hill, that that sign would be fastened to the top of the cross. And so that is what is happening in verse 19. That Pilate puts together this sign for Jesus and he prepared and fastened it to the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it's written in three different languages. It's written in kind of Latin, the language of Rome, right? It's written in Greek, it's written in Hebrew. So that everyone from every tongue and every language and every kind of common nation at the time might be able to see who it is that hangs. Who it is that walks, who it is that stumbles and falls. This is the king of the Jews. And make no mistake in John's gospel that he he mentions the fact that it is written in multiple languages. Why? Because in John's gospel, Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. Yes, he is that, but he is the saviour of all the world. He's of all, he's for all nations, of all peoples, groups, right? I, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Right? Um, for God so loved the world. <laughs> There's not a glass of water, I'll knock over the stand. That here is the one 
so that all might see wherever they come from that this is the king of the Jews. And what John is kind of wanting to highlight is that here, even in Jesus' weakness, here in his kind of most vulnerable, powerless moment, actually everything is playing out just as he planned. That God is not out of control here, but rather he is the orchestrator and author of this. That in some way God has written the script. It is not that he has been usurped by his own creation. It is rather a plan that is playing itself out. A plan that was written and orchestrated before the very beginning of time. Here comes the one, the king of the Jews, who will be saviour to all nations. And you see that because of John's cleverness with kind of dripping in all these kind of um, uh, fulfilments, that this has been written beforehand. This is kind of what was planned, right? That Jesus was strung up between two criminals. That's John's echoing Isaiah 700 years beforehand, that Jesus would be um, hung in between two criminals, that he would be numbered among the transgressors that he would be taken out of the city to be slain, just as Deuteronomy predicted, that he would be lifted up on the cross, just as just as Exodus uh, foresaw, that the soldiers would gamble for his clothes, down to the smallest detail it is playing out. that this king is not powerless, though he is naked and vulnerable. In fact, here is the one in John's Gospel who has created all things, who is the author of all life. In the beginning was the Word. And the, and the Word, and all was made through him. And it's sustained by him. And so he is the one who creates the universe foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies that would be about his cross. That, has it, has it ever, have you ever realized that Jesus as, um, the one who creates, the author, knitted together the very soldiers who would tear him apart. That Jesus knitted together and created the the soldiers' hands and fingers that would nail the cross, that that would hammer the nails into his own hands. That he knitted them together, knowing full well that it would be these fingers, these hands that would pin him to the wood. 
He is not weak, but rather he is in glory and strength. It is all happening according to plan. Verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece, top to bottom. Let us not tear it, they said to one another, but let us decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So John's kind of trickled in all these references to kind of how this was foreshadowed, how this was planned, this was orchestrated and authored by God. But John kind of highlights and kind of draws us into to one place in particular, which is to be the lens through which we are to read John's crucifixion account, and that is Psalm 22. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and then later, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Do you see and hear kind of that this is the, this is Jesus, this is Jesus' psalm on the cross. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. The dogs surround me. That's kind of wild dogs, right? Wild dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Do you hear kind of the language of Psalm 22 and why John draws us here? Because this is the psalm that is the death of the Good Shepherd. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I see, because the good shepherd sees the wolf coming and chooses to fill its jaws rather than let the sheep die. And this is... John's way of us kind of understanding who it is that hangs on the cross, not just the king, but this is the good shepherd, and John is saying, this is the wolf. He is the wolf. Here are those wild dogs that surround and pierce his hands and his feet. Here are the roaring lions that tear at their prey. And the good shepherd lays down his life. He will not abandon the sheep. Rather, he will fill the jaws of the wolf. And he will let their teeth pierce his hands and pierce his side. 
I um, have a friend who is a sheep farmer in, it's like out Albury, Wodonga kind of way. And uh, we went and uh, stayed there for a, a little while and um, he shared about um, how he goes out shooting foxes on his farm. And um, I always had this picture of a fox as this kind of cute woodland creature. I think just from cartoons when I was kind of six or seven, right? And um, I went out with him one night and he showed me that this is, this is why he shoots the foxes because they knock over the little lambs for sport and they tear their throats out and play just in the blood while it's dying. And, and the sheep are completely helpless. They can't do anything, right? Like, they don't have any def- defensive measures. The mothers of the lambs are there and just need to leave. The only defense they have is him, the shepherd. That's the only hope they have. And here is the good shepherd who will not abandon his sheep, but rather lays his life down for them. We remembered Anzac Day this week. And every Anzac Day, I'm reminded of a picture that I saw on Facebook kind of years and years ago, and still every Anzac Day just kind of comes into my mind. And the picture is of a man that is um, bleeding out on a helicopter. And he's being evac'd out and on his ribs it says, for those I love I will sacrifice. And every Anzac Day I remember that picture. And every Anzac Day that picture then leads me to the cross where I remember that that is true, so true, of our shepherd king. For those I love, I will sacrifice. And John could have just left it there. And John could have, like the other Gospels, brought us to Psalm 22 through, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But instead John doesn't. John actually chooses to draw us into uh, the nakedness and the stripping and the shame of Jesus. In those times, it was uh, commonplace for criminals when they were being nailed to the cross to be stripped bare. And the soldiers would gamble or the soldiers would divide up their clothing as part of their wage. 
And this was part of the execution because it was a way to, to shame them. It was a way to kind of show this level of vulnerability and humiliate them. Because in ancient cultures all around, and in, even in our own experience, we know this, right? Like, to be naked is to be vulnerable. To be naked is to be exposed. And, and more than that, there is kind of a sense of shame because everything is out in the open, literally. That there's this exposure. That we can't control what people see. And people see us exactly as we are. There's no Instagram filter. And it's terrifying. And John is intentionally um, mirroring the very beginning and wants to call our minds back to a time where there was nakedness but without shame. That when Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, they were naked and were unashamed. And here is the shepherd king, here is the great divine seamstress who is stripped naked, why? To clothe us in his righteousness. That's what Romans tells us. That's what Revelation tells us when John pens that, reflecting on the cross. That he is stripped naked, why? To clothe us in his righteousness. That we might wear his garments. And so let me end on this. I think often we think of righteousness as just um, not sinful. Okay, so we think of sinful as like the negative and we think of then being made righteous as like being brought to kind of a neutral position. Like a blank canvas. But righteousness is is not that, it's so much more. And uh, perhaps this illustration will help. Um, uh, I used to watch a lot of NCIS back in the day. Um, and uh, it's a kind of a naval crime investigation show. And um, there's uh, one of the episodes is of uh, a veteran, I think from Vietnam, who um, has returned home and in his as he's aged and kind of starts to lose his memory, he re- brings himself forward as having killed his best friend. And so they um, kind of have him sitting in uh, uh, they have him sitting in the offices and he's waiting to be arrested, uh, the military police come and they arrive and they're going to put him in handcuffs. And uh, as he kind of stands, this ancient kind of withered, broken man, uh, and as the police are about to put the handcuffs on him, uh, one of the detectives, Denozo, reaches in fr- reaches out and pulls the veteran's blazer back. And the military police see, see they, they see that he's wearing the Congressional Medal of Honor. 
and immediately those military police stand up straight. They change their posture and they go from putting handcuffs on him to saluting. And and why the change? Why from arrest to honour? Why from handcuffs to salute? Because it doesn't matter who he was. What they're saluting is the medal. And what the medal represents. Forgiveness is getting released from jail when your crimes are wiped clean. But righteousness is like getting the Medal of Honour. And here on the cross, we see the one who is stripped naked. He is, in one sense, clothed with our nakedness so that we might be clothed with his righteousness. So that we might receive the Medal of Honour while he is arrested and cast off like a criminal. That is the great exchange. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, naked you hung on that cross. King of the Jews, for the whole world to read and see, and yet soldiers just played games at the foot of the cross. And too often, Lord, if we are honest, we play games at the foot of the cross. Forgive us of this and help us to... Like John, fix our eyes and to see clearly what it is that you have done for us and let that sink deeply inside and let that rearrange us and transform and and change us so that we might stop trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves and try to put on faces, pretend we're better than we are, in an attempt to cover up our nakedness. But may we realise truly, deeply, how you have already clothed us because of the crucified Christ. Amen.